Good morning. Welcome to Jacksonville Press. If you would grab your Bibles, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Grab one of these blue hardback Bibles. They're all throughout the room. Turn to page 1132, or hopefully you've got your 1 Corinthians scripture journal. There are more in the hallway behind you if you need to grab one of those uh, for the year. We're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Uh, welcome uh, to Jacksonville Press. My name is Dustin. I get to be the lead pastor here. Uh, this year, we're going through the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, if you need to, you might need to scoot in a little bit as people make their way back to their seats. Looks like it's a pretty full day. Friends, if you would, open up in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Friends, hear the words of life to us. This is Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. Paul writes, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. And this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated and keep your Bible open in front of you as we pray? Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name that you would speak to every heart. And Lord, that your call would go forth from your word. And Lord, that men and women would turn to you. And Father, that we would hear Christ and him crucified preached this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm excited to let you know, if you haven't heard, uh, that there are three young men in our church who are either enrolled in seminary or will be enrolled in just a few months. So Lord willing, three guys will leave our congregation at some point in their life and go out and be pastors. And so I thought this was an especially appropriate passage for those three guys to really listen to me. And I'm not going to make eye contact with you or point you out. Uh, but if I see you sleeping, I am going to squirt you with my water pistol that I have right here. I'm just kidding. I don't have one, but I have dreamt of having one. But whether or not you're you know, going to seminary or Bible college or you're not, really this passage is an encouragement to each one of us because here we get to learn not just about Paul's life and his experience as an apostle, but we are reminded of the fundamentals of the gospel, what the message of Jesus Christ really is all about. Look down at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, right? So this is Paul, an apostle, called by God to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ, who had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Paul had planted a church in a big city called Corinth. It would have been a major metropolitan area, lots of cultures, lots of, you know, highfalutin kind of people, if you know what I mean. But Paul says here in verse 2 that he says, when I came to you, that is when I first came to plant a church, brothers... That word Adelphoi, of course, means brothers and sisters. He says right there in verse one, if you look down, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Now, when you read the Apostle Paul, there's two things I want you to always sort of be thinking about, all right? So you can write this down, uh, but try to see if you can track with what I'm gonna say. Uh, Whenever you read Paul, keep these two things in mind. Number one, you've got to hear Paul writing from the love of Christ in his heart. 
When Paul is talking to you and I, he's not being a jerk. He's not being mad at us. Paul is speaking on behalf of the love of Christ. He's talking to people that he loves. That's why he says brothers. Look at verse two, verse one. And I, when I came to you, brothers, family members, Paul has no wife. Paul has no kids. Paul knows the teachings of Jesus. Who is Jesus, his mother and his brothers and his sisters? Well, you might say Mary and you know, his family. But Jesus says to that question, those who obey the word of God are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. Christian, when you hear the writings of Paul, you've got to hear the love of Christ speaking to you. He's writing out of a love for you and me. That's why he calls them brothers almost in every passage I read week after week, because he's reminding beloved brothers, you and I, of the love of Christ. Secondly, the thing to remember is that when you and I read the writings of the apostles, we're not just hearing Paul's opinion, although we do hear Paul's accent. It is phrased in the way that Paul would talk. God is using Paul, but it's primarily you and I hearing the word of Christ. That's what it means for you and I to listen to the apostles or to read the New Testament. We're not just hearing a guy's opinion about who he thinks God may be. The audacious claims of Christianity is that God inspired this man with the love of Christ and the authority of Christ to tell us how you and I can know God. To hear the Bible correctly, you've got to hear the love of Christ and the authority and the word of Christ in it. But notice what he says, look at verse one. And Paul says, and I, when I came to you, that is when I showed up in Corinth, you know, a few years ago and I planted the church, uh, Paul was there for a year and a half as their planting pastor. He says, when I came to you brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Now, it may be important to remember that in Corinth, uh, orators and speakers and rhetoricians, that was incredibly popular in a way that you and I can't really totally appreciate because you know, if we wanna know what information is going on or the news, we can just you know, turn to our phones or watch the news or you know, find you know, a newspaper if they still print those things. You know, there's ways to get information. Back in this ancient culture, the way you got information was you listened to people stand up and talk and they would just womp, 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 womp about anything. And then if you liked what they say, you would pay them and stuff. But Paul wants you to know that when he shows up in Corinth and starts talking about Christ crucified for us, he's like, I'm not talking like all of the other talking heads that you've ever heard about. I'm not even looking for money from you. As we'll go on in 1 Corinthians, this is part of the funny things that Paul talks about is he says, I refuse to accept any money from you so that you would never confuse the message of Jesus with all these other orators running around Corinth trying to make a buck off of you. So when he says, I don't come to you with lofty speech or wisdom, what he means is he didn't show up with showmanship. He didn't show up with theatrics. He showed up with a simple but profound message that God loved this world so much that he became a part of it. He became a baby who grew into a man who gave his life as a sacrifice for our sins. And God raised him from the dead to show you and I that one day a new world is coming when everything will be made new. Everything wrong will be gone. All injustice will be gone. And a new heavens and a new earth will exist. And we can believe that day is coming because God raised him from the dead. That kingdom has already begun. 
And now God is raising dead things to life. And he invites you and I to be a part of that world by faith. That's the simple and profound message that Paul came to preach. And he didn't want to confuse anybody by doing theatrics. Uh, If you will indulge me for just a minute, there's a dark part of my life where I see things online of what other churches do sometimes. And I will, I promise you, I watched a pastor on a wrecking ball swinging at his church. Did anybody see this? Has anybody seen this? It's unbelievable. It's not even a joke. The guy sang the Miley Cyrus song on a wrecking ball and then he swang, swung, swang. We should have cut it off and let him fall. He swang, he <laughs> went like he swung back and forth singing wrecking ball at church. Not like at his home on Saturday night, like at church. He did it on a Sunday morning. It's like, have you read the Bible? When I came to you, beloved people, brothers and sisters, we don't come proclaiming Christ with lofty speech or wrecking balls or worldly wisdom. You know, um, I've got a good friend uh, back, uh, back east, and uh, he told a story the other day that I love so much. I thought I'd, I'd pass it on to you. Um, let's do a trivia question. Who's the greatest preacher who ever lived? Jesus. Oh man, that was an easy one. You should have got that one right off the bat. Okay. Jesus is the greatest preacher. All right. Number two, who's number two on the list? Many people would say an old Englishman, a Baptist or reformed Baptist. He was the first megachurch pastors from what we understand of that term. His name is Charles Spurgeon. Yeah. If you've ever read anything by Spurgeon, everybody loves Spurgeon. You can read him devotionally. Um, he's a great preacher, great to study his preaching. Young pastors, it's good, good to read Spurgeon sermons. Uh, but does anybody know how Spurgeon became a Christian? He was a teenager. And uh, one day it was a snowstorm in London and nobody you know, was going to church because there was so much snow. And, uh, but Spurgeon, like a good teenager, decided to like walk through town. And he realized as he walked past a Methodist chapel, a Methodist, y'all, he goes past a Methodist chapel and he realizes there are about four or five people gathered, even in the midst of a snowstorm. So young teenage Spurgeon walks in and they're having church. But the minister couldn't make it to the church because of all the snow. And so it fell upon just a guy in the church, a deacon who looked around and said, well, I guess somebody's got to preach. And he didn't have a sermon prepared, but this deacon, this man stood up and he read one verse and it was Isaiah 45, 22. And he read it in the King James because that's what everybody used back then. And it goes like this, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. He had a three point outline. Look unto me, be ye saved. And that's how Charles Spurgeon became a Christian. That deacon looked at him and said, young man, be ye saved. Look unto Christ. And Spurgeon, this teenager said, I think he's talking to me. And what's amazing is if you, you know, read Spurgeon's sermons, he talks about this uh, testimony often, but he never talks about how great of a preacher the deacon was. That's not the point. The point was that there was power in the message of Christ crucified. Um, It's been said, what you win people with is what you win people to. Have you ever heard that? 
So what is this message of Christ crucified? Look down at verse two. Uh, Paul's gonna start telling us what this uh, message is. Oh, pause, pause right there. This is important. Look down in your Bible right there where it says the testimony of God. I want you to know this. Uh, the grammar on that, I'm not gonna bore you, but when it says testimony of God, when Paul says, I'm coming to bring you the testimony of God, he's not saying a testimony about God. What he's saying is God's testimony to you. The Bible is not a message about God. It is a message from God. Do you see the difference? Paul has not come to tell you about God. He has come to speak on behalf of God to you. This is God's message to you. Uh, the deacon did not say, look unto me and be ye saved. Christ spoke through that deacon to Spurgeon, right? Okay, verse two. So what is this message of Christ crucified? Paul says in verse two, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him, what? Crucified. So let's pause right there. Why is he talking about Christ and him crucified? Why does he say that? Well, the thing to remember is that, uh, you know, 2000 years after the fact, we lose some of the shock value of talking about crucifixion. But in this day, crucifixion was not talked about in polite company. I mean, it'd be like you going into like, I don't know, having dinner at the Jacksonville Inn and then standing up and talking about how that guy on the electric chair didn't die fast enough. Everyone would say, whoa, that is really morbid. You need to stop. It's ruining the vibe, what's going on right now. There's a sense that the crucifixion of Christ was utterly shocking and actually a little bit offensive to people. It's not something you talk about in polite company. But what's interesting about Paul in verse two, if you look down there, is he says, I decided to know nothing among you except the offense of Jesus Christ crucified for you. You mean I'm so bad that it took the Son of God dying on a cross for my sins to save me? Psh, get that out of here. But what I want you to recognize about this offensive message is it's one of the surprising, beautiful realities of Christianity, uh, which is that Christianity has this way of like entering into your life and sort of like knocking down all of the little idols of our hearts. So if you're like really greedy, Christianity has this like awesome way of being like, you, you can't serve God and money. That's just it. If that's it, you can't serve God and money. What's it gonna be? Or if you're a very angry person, Christianity has this way of saying, well, if, you're, if you call your brother fool, you're in danger of hellfire. Christianity has this amazing way of taking the idols of our heart and smashing them to pieces and saying, there's only one God. You cannot have an idol. And what is an idol? An idol is usually a good thing that we make an ultimate thing. Paul says it this way, for the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. You see, I think the idol of the people of Corinth was pride. They wanted, you know, to listen to all the great speakers. They wanted to have all this influential philosophical thought and all this wisdom. And they wanted to have the world's wisdom. And, you know, that was what the culture told them what was great. So when Paul goes into this culture, he says, I know what your idol is. It's pride. And guess what? 
the message of Jesus Christ crucified is going to smash the idol of pride. <laughs> and in his place, it's going to raise up a crucified savior. So that if you're going to claim to be a Christian, you can never again be proud of anything. In fact, people are going to despise you probably because of it. You see, the message of Jesus really does have this way of challenging us exactly where we need to be challenged. Whatever our idols are, the Lord is a jealous God, and he will not let us put anything except him first and foremost in our life. You see, the amazing thing about Christianity too, though, is it does give us something to be proud of and to boast about and to build our lives around. It's just not us. <laughs> it's just not us and our idols, right? What does Paul say in verse 124? Look over there in 1 Corinthians, verse 124. If I'm making eye contact with you, I know you're not looking. What does Paul say? But to those of us who are called, that is if you're called and you hear the voice of God, both Jews and Greeks, people from every nation, tribe, and language, Christ really is the power of God and the wisdom of God. What do we boast in? Christ. Going back to verse two though, notice what he says. This is so interesting, isn't it? Because he says, I have decided to know nothing among you. Why does he have to say that? Isn't he an apostle? Why does he have to decide to preach Christ? Isn't that a funny, funny thing? Like, it's like, well, isn't that kind of like what you're doing? You know, it's like you'd go to the restaurant and you order food and the chef is like, well, I had to decide to cook you food today. And you're like, was that a decision? Was that a conscious decision you had to make? Isn't that inherent to your job? Why does Paul say, I, have, I had to decide to do it this way? Uh, well, if you flip over to the book of Acts, um, I think there's a tantalizing reason. Uh, I can't prove this, but I do think there's something to this that is worth chewing on. If you uh, study the book of Acts, Acts is really the beginning of the early church, right? It's the story of how the apostles took the message of Jesus and how the church just, you know, exploded across the world, right? People are coming to faith left and right. And if you start around, I don't know, um, Acts 13, and you go to verse 43. It's Acts 13, we're gonna flip through Acts real fast. But what you'll notice is when Paul goes on missionary journeys, when Paul is going around to all of these cities, planting churches and preaching Christ, what often happens is lots of people come to faith. So in Acts 13, 43, it says, many Jews and devout converts started following Paul. And then he goes on to the next town in chapter 14. And in chapter 14, verse one, how many people believe? If you look at Acts 14, verse one, it says a great many believe. And then if you go on to verse uh, 21, this is 14, 21, they go to a town called Derby, and a great many disciples uh, give their lives to Jesus. And if you just keep going through Acts, what you'll find is in almost every town that they go to, lots and lots of men and women come to faith in Jesus. So I can keep, you, I can keep giving you verses through here, but um, what I want you to see maybe is in verse 17. Go to verse 17, verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. All right, so what I want to suggest to you is that throughout Paul's missionary journeys, he's going into towns, and is it like a small amount of people are responding or a lot of people? Is a lot of people are coming to faith. In Acts 17, though, something interesting happens. 
he goes to the most intellectual, influential city. He goes to a place called Athens. And there, he argues for Jesus. He talks about the resurrection. He even quotes their pagan philosophers. Uh, Paul quotes Epimenides of Crete. But at the end of his experience on Athens, only a few people seem to respond, and most people scoff at him and leave. Look at verse Acts 16, excuse me, 17, verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we'll hear you more about this. So only a few say, we'll give you a second hearing. And then what happens in Acts chapter 18? As soon as Paul leaves Athens, he goes to Corinth. So I guess uh, what I'm suggesting to you and what many you know, biblical scholars will point out is that it might be that Paul experiences his first ministry um, discouragement. Everywhere else, things have been going great. They were going like gangbusters. Then he shows up in Athens and he doesn't get the response he thought he would. He had learned all about their gods. He had quoted from their own philosophers and it didn't work apparently. And so now Paul, somewhat defeated, goes to Corinth. So is it that Paul didn't do it what was right? No, I think Paul preached the gospel. I know he did. He was an apostle. But I do think there are certain times in our life where we are discouraged and things just don't pan out the way we thought they would, right? Like no matter what, Paul had hoped for better things in Athens. And now he's in Corinth and he's reflecting back on like, what went wrong or what do I need to focus on? Well, in our passage, we know what he decides to focus on. 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2. after that defeat, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Um, Christian, don't waste your discouragement. Don't waste it. Uh, when we go through hard seasons and disappointments and hardships, it's a wonderful opportunity to plant new seeds, to go back to what the main thing is. Because what's the main thing? The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, right? You know, Paul goes on in verse three, and he's like, I have decided to know Christ in him crucified. And we think, man, Paul's like so impressive. He's like a super Christian, you know, like, of course, he just gets defeated and jumps right back up. Um, I can never do that. But what's amazing about the gospel is that if the gospel is really working in your life, you start to actually become a more humble person. And when you're a more humble person, you're more honest and vulnerable. And that's what Paul is. In fact, instead of saying, I came out stronger and 10 times better at preaching and 10 times cooler, look at verse three. What does he say? I came out of a season of difficulty, keeping the main thing, the main thing. And when I came to Corinth, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. 
Paul's being honest here. He's saying, yeah, I, I kind of left a little discouraged. I was weak. I was trembling. Now, why is Paul, you know, weak and trembling uh, being in Corinth? Well, if you read Acts chapter 18, I'd encourage you to flip over there. Uh, you'll find that they beat a bunch of people, right? So Paul stands in danger of being beaten. In fact, Paul had already been beaten several times for preaching the message of Jesus. So, you know, what's the old saying? Like everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth, Right? Like it's all fun and games to preach the gospel till someone punches you in the mouth, right? Paul had had experiences of abuse like that. And so of course, when he goes into a new town, there's fear and there's trembling. But what's amazing about this is some people will say, well, no, 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 Paul's not afraid. He's not physically afraid. He's not fearful because he's got to be like a super Christian and super Christians don't experience fear. He had to be in fear and all of God. And that's a very pious thought. <laughs> it's a very pious thought. And yes, that's great to fear the Lord but I don't actually think that's the kind of fear that Paul has. And I say that because if you read Acts chapter 18, which is where we get the story of Paul's relationship to Corinth, Paul is so fearful and worried and beaten up by ministry that Jesus actually appears to him in a vision in Corinth. That's how low Paul is at this point in his life. Verse nine, and the Lord Jesus said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. John Chrysostom was a pastor in the 300s um, I like reading his sermons because we still have them. Also, he was a native speaker of Greek. So he just read the New Testament like you and I, you know, read our phones. Uh, in this, he talks about this question was, well, is Paul like a physically afraid or was he like piously afraid? It's interesting because Chrysostom says, no, he was just normal afraid, but that makes Paul even more of an encouragement to us. Chrysostom said, Paul did fear and dreaded it excessively for though he was Paul, yet he was still a man. But this is no charge against Paul. It is to the praise of his fixed purpose of mind that even when he dreaded death and whippings, he did nothing wrong because of this fear. I, for my part, on this account, admire him the more because being in fear, and not simply fear, but even trembling, Paul ran ever to keep his crown and gave not in for any danger in his task of sowing the gospel. Don't you love that? Young preachers to be. It's okay to be scared, but what's the hope? What does Jesus tell Paul? I am with you. That should be ringing bells for every Christian, whether you're a preacher or not. What does Jesus say in the Great Commission when we tell people about Jesus? Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, what? I'm with you, even into the end of the age. A Christian, you and I live in a culture very similar to Corinth. 
uh, we are not going to be seen in a positive light because we are Christians. We're probably going to be seen as offensive to modern sensibilities. But what's incumbent upon each one of us is to obey the commands of Jesus, to do the hard thing. For Paul, that meant to not be afraid and to keep on preaching, even though he still had maybe a bloody lip. Christian, do the right thing. Do the hard thing that God is calling you to do. And the great hope is that Jesus is with you. What could you want more than that? I think of James chapter 4, 17. Uh, maybe this needs to speak to somebody in the room. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. If you're holding back from doing the right thing, Christian, know that Christ is with you. And whatever you fear is not worth being afraid of. Paul finishes this passage in verses four and five, basically reminding us uh, what he's already said, but also reminding you and I that the power of the gospel is not just in people talking, it's in the power of God. Look at verses four and five. Paul says, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. That word plausible there means just sort of like believable, you know, convincing, persuasive. Uh, it was not in persuasive words of wisdom, but it was in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Right there in verse four, Paul's saying, remember, I'm preaching something not because it's just simply persuasive, but you're going to see the demonstration of the spirit and of power. And right there, the way that the grammar works, spirit and power are basically the same thing. So he's talking about the way that you and I come to faith is through not just a persuasive sermon or a persuasive talk, but actually through the power of the Holy Spirit. So that when you have faith in Christ, you don't rest in people, you rest in the spirit's power. You know, what Paul's saying is, of course, our faith in Christ is not in theatrics. Uh, you remember, we don't give our lives to a preacher or to a ministry. Uh, we do not profess our faith in a denomination. Christian, we give our lives to whom? Christ, because he gave his life for us. But what convinces you and I to persevere in the faith? I mean, why do we keep persevering? Uh, I think what this passage is showing you and I is that what keeps us going, Christian, is our experience of the power of God. I can make arguments all day long about why you should trust the Bible. There is no greater argument, though, than the Holy Spirit calling dead people to new life. How do you know you're a Christian? Well, do you confess Jesus as your Savior? Have you been baptized in his name? And have you experienced the power of the Holy Spirit? Which means, do you see your old sinful way of life differently? Do you wanna turn from the dead ways of this world? And do you really want to pursue Christ? Is Christ the focus of your life? If that's true, that didn't come from you. <laughs> that came from God. And that came from the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. You know, when you are a Christian, part of the power of God is you don't care what the world says about you anymore because you know that your Redeemer lives, right? But that didn't come from you. That came from the Holy Spirit's power at work within you. You know, why do you 
persevere? Why do you believe in all this? Um, for Paul, it's the power of the Spirit, not just in our salvation, but also our sanctification, right? Our growing in grace. Um, you know, when I think about like, why do I keep believing in Jesus? I think my answer is simply because he changed my life. I mean, there's no doubt at all in my heart that Jesus changed my life. And now I wanna live all for him. I mean, I struggle with sin every day as, as everybody knows, nobody's perfect, but there is a change in me that is demonstrable and it is powerful. And it's oriented my whole life around the person of Jesus. And that's the same for every Christian. We're not perfect, but the orientation of our life is different, right? There's a change within us. Um, and that friend is the Holy Spirit in my life and in your life. And that's ultimately what convinces you and I. It's the word and the spirit in our lives. God's holy word and the experience of the Holy Spirit working together. So our conversion and our growth in Christ. You know, all this, you know, I can't help it. Everybody, hopefully you're all thinking about how you became a Christian. I hope that's what you're thinking back to is the day you became a Christian and gave your life to Christ. Um, I think back to my conversion, obviously in college, I've talked about it a lot. Um, but what I love about my conversion is I uh, very soon after I became a Christian, I got involved with the Presbyterian campus ministry called RUF. And I started to be discipled by a Presbyterian minister. And uh, you know how like when you get a cat, a cat will sometimes like give you a gift, like a dead mouse, you know? You know, like how cat, you're like, what's up cat? I guess you live in the neighborhood. And then like you give it some milk and then like, a couple weeks later, like comes and brings you a dead cat. And you're like, I guess, thank you. <laughs> when you befriend a Presbyterian minister, eventually he's gonna give you a copy of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And you'll be like, thank you, I guess. I don't really, I don't really know what to do with this. I don't know what it is. Well, my campus pastor, you know, after I became a Christian, he gave me this copy and I came across it. This is like 20 years old and I still have it in my library. And uh, he's got his little note to me, uh, to Dustin from Les Tole Lege. Tole, tole Lege is Latin for take up and read. That's what converted Augustine. He heard kids singing that. Anyway, what I love about this is this idea of the, how the word of God convinces us but at the end of the day, it's the power of the Holy Spirit that changes your heart. That really is the bedrock of your faith. Uh, if you can believe it, this comes up in the Westminster Confession of Faith when it talks about how we trust the Bible. Uh, if you'll indulge me, it, it's giving this chapter about how do we know we can trust the Bible. And it says these words, I love these words. It says, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to have a high and reverent esteem for the Holy Scriptures. You know, how do we know the Bible is the word of God? Well, because the church says it's great. Okay, that's helpful, but that's not all. We may be convinced by the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all of the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many arguments uh, that it gives for uh, the proof that it is the word of God, yet notwithstanding, this is the point. Why do we trust the Bible? Why do we persevere? There's a lot of reasons, but there's one overarching reason. Yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority of the Bible is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word 
in our hearts. Christian, why do you persevere in the faith? Because the word of God convinces you and the Holy Spirit impresses it on your heart. It's the word and the spirit. What does Paul say? My speech and my message were not implausible words of human wisdom, but they were in demonstration of the spirit and his power. So that Christian, your faith might not rest in man's wisdom, but in the power of God. Uh, Friends, the Bible is not a message about God. It is the Holy Spirit inspired message from God to you and me. It calls every one of us to look unto him and be ye saved. It is the power of God to raise dead things to life. Uh, Christian, um, if you're struggling with your faith because church leaders have failed or because a church has wronged you, remember God's message to you. Was Paul crucified for you or a denomination? No. You were baptized into Christ and his word and his spirit confirm you. Uh, If you're a future pastor in the room, hear me. And maybe if you're in high school, maybe God's gonna call you one day to be a pastor. Wouldn't that be something? Remember this sermon, proclaim Jesus Christ, crucified for us, risen for us, And friends, if you preach Christ crucified, I promise you, young men, that you will see the power of God in your life and in the lives of people in your churches. Don't don't get on the wrecking ball. Don't, just don't, just don't go there. Don't trust in theatrics. Don't trust in showmanship. Um, Preach like Moses. Remember that guy, Moses? He had a very simple offensive, profound message, repent, let my people go. And then God's Holy Spirit did the powerful stuff. The word and the spirit. If you're not a Christian this morning, uh, friend, welcome on behalf of Jesus. I have great news for you. The gospel is two simple messages. Cheer up, you're worse than you think. And so am I, and so is every person you've ever met but cheer up, you are more loved and accepted by Jesus Christ than you dare imagine. And if you let him into your life, you will see the power of God. Let's pray. Father, we love you because you first loved us, even in our sin and our failures and our mistakes. You looked at us through the eyes of a loving father Lord, you sent your son to be the sacrifice for our sins so that we may have new life by your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray for every Christian in the room, Lord, that they would know your Holy Spirit's power and that they would trust your word. Lord, I pray that you would raise up uh, many preachers out of this church, Lord, that would proclaim the excellencies of him who has called them out of darkness into marvelous light. And Lord, that they would not trust in anything except Christ and him crucified. And Father, I pray for anyone in this room that needs to respond to the voice of Jesus through your word, Lord, that they would look unto Christ and be saved. 
Father, this morning we also pray for uh, our brothers and sisters who are struggling and going through hardship. Father, we lift to you Jerry Mathern, Clyde Hoffman, Ella Klimko, Mary McClure, Jim Saltz, Sean McCoy, and Paul Deller. God, have mercy on each one of them. Strengthen them for the days ahead. And Lord, we mourn alongside the family of Sue Nelson in her passing just this past week. Uh, comfort her family with the peace that surpasses understanding. And Lord, we praise you for a life well-lived. And Lord, we lift to you our uh, sister church here in the valley. We pray for Table Rock Fellowship. And Lord, we pray as they go through these next few weeks and months, Lord, that you would be guiding them by your spirit. Lord, unify that church, Lord, that they may proclaim your glory. And lastly, Lord, we pray for the Youth Mexico mission trip. Lord, would you bring just the right people to that trip? And Lord, would you help us to raise many dollars on the yard sale to send many people down there? And Lord, we especially pray for the families in Mexico, Lord, that they would be blessed by these homes. And Lord, we would not just make houses, but we would make homes of grace and that by the power of your spirit, you would dwell among those families. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.